verse 19 to 31. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Thanks, Carl. Well, I always, uh, I always love to be a part of the, uh, the block clean-up day, uh, but the, the downside is that uh, I'm always in agony uh, afterwards. I, honestly, I did almost nothing yesterday, and I, ca- and I went home, and I could, I was, I could barely stay awake, uh, and I was, <laughs> I was just trying to type emails, and I'm just going, oh, my goodness, just from lopping a few branches. But it's good to be back on the tools. Uh, <laughs> so there you go. Well, uh, more seriously, we're beginning uh, today uh, to think about the question here at the branch, uh, what happens after this life? And we've spent a bit of time over the last few months asking people that we know, asking people around Launceston what they think, because uh, it's really helpful to understand what it is that people think about what happens after this life. All of us face death at one point in our life, uh, and, and everybody, I think, has, has some view uh, on what happens after this life. Uh, and we're going to be looking uh, over the next four weeks at some of the top responses of what people have, have said in, in what they think about what happens after this life. The one that we're looking at today is, I hope something happens after this life, but can we know? That was the most popular response. So about 33% of people said uh, that they, they think something like that. Uh, the next most popular response was that nothing happens after this life. Uh, about 20% of people uh, don't think anything happens after this life. Uh, the week after, so the third week, we'll be looking at heaven happens but not hell. That's kind of the idea that 
something good happens for everybody. And that was about 9% of people said that. Uh, And in the last week, we'll be looking at uh, the third most popular response, which was that reincarnation happens. Uh, And about 14% of people said that. Uh, And there was, you know, other responses as well that, that, uh, you know, didn't fit into neatly into categories, uh, but the the basic point is that there's there's lots of ideas, but there's there's some big ones uh, that people have, and we'll, and we'll spend some time thinking about those. So if you've come along today because uh, you're interested in thinking through a bit more what happens after this life, or uh, interested maybe in what the Christian view of what happens after this life is, then it's great to have you here and. Uh, hopefully you can come along in weeks to come as well, uh, even if those topics aren't the kinds of questions that you're uh, thinking through yourself. Uh, alternatively, you might be a regular churchgoer, whether you attend here or whether you come from somewhere else, and hopefully these these uh, talks will be helpful for you, either because uh, you're going to face death at one time, uh, which is which is the case, or perhaps you know... Uh, somebody who is facing death, a friend, and these might give you the resources to help them think through uh, what happens after this life. So let's pray and then we'll, we'll get started. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in the Bible uh, and also in uh, the person of Jesus Christ. And as we try to listen now to what you've said in the Bible, we ask that you would reveal yourself to us, give us certainty about who you are and who Jesus is, and give us certainty too about what happens after this life. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, at the end of last year, uh, I decided to do something a little odd, maybe, which was to reread all the Harry Potter books. Uh, so I'd read them years before. I worked out this morning, it would have been about 10 years before. It was uh, when I was working uh, in Canberra, so in about 20, 2006, 2007 or something like that. I read most of them. Not all of them were out then, but uh, I read a fair few of them. And at the end of last year, the movies, I think, were showing on television or something like that, and I kind of, I kind of got inspired to go back and to relive my youth. Uh, and so I thought, I'll go back and read them. Uh, and it was, it was good fun to do that. Uh, but one of the things actually that struck me as I read through those books was how often in those books the characters reflect on death and life after death. It actually happens surprisingly uh, often. So here are some of the examples of reflections on death that come up in those books. So in The Philosopher's Stone, Dumbledore says to Harry... Death is like going to bed after a very, very long day. After all, to the well-organised mind, death is but the next great adventure. Or in The Prisoner of Azkaban, Dumbledore says to Harry, You think the dead we have loved ever truly leave us? You think that we don't recall them more clearly than ever in times of great trouble? Your father is alive in you, Harry. And shows himself most plainly when you have need of him. Or in the Order of the Phoenix, after having lost his godfather, Harry speaks to the ghost nearly headless Nick. uh, And the following conversation takes place. He will not come back, repeated Nick. He will have gone on. 
What do you mean, gone on? said Harry quickly. Gone on where? Listen, what happens when you die anyway? Where do you go? Why doesn't everyone come back? Why isn't this place full of ghosts? Why? I can't answer, said Nick. You're dead, aren't you? said Harry exasperatedly. Who can answer better than you? I was afraid of death, said Nick softly. I chose to remain behind. I sometimes wonder whether I oughtn't to have. I know nothing of the secrets of death, Harry, for I chose my feeble imitation of life instead. Or listen to this from another book from the Pulitzer Prize winning book, All the Light We Cannot See. Uh, in which life after death is compared to invisible radio waves. And is it so hard to believe that souls might also travel those paths? That her father and Etienne and Madame Manek and the German boy named Werner Pfennig might harry the sky in flocks like egrets, like terns, like starlings. That great shuttles of souls might fly about, faded but audible if you listen closely enough. They flow above the chimneys, ride the sidewalk, slip through your jacket and shirt and breastbone and lungs and pass out through the other side. The air, a library... And the record of every life lived, every sentence spoken, every word transmitted, still reverberating within it. Those books and those sentiments and the responses that we got when we asked people what they think happens after this life shows that most of us, I think, a fair proportion of humanity... Most of us want to believe in something after death. As the Bible says, there's something about eternity written on the hearts of people. We hope to meet up with those that we love. We hope to go on living. But there's a huge difference, I think, between wanting there to be something. Wouldn't it be nice if we could meet up with this? Wouldn't it be nice if it was like... A light, the air was like a library of the lives that anyone had ever lived. We hope, there's a big difference between hoping for there to be something and there actually being something. Like nearly headless Nick, I think many of us feel that we don't know the secrets of death. I don't know that, Harry. I can't speak about that. I don't know anything about it. But is there a way that we can know, or are we just destined to hope and nothing more? Maybe, but I don't know. People often jokingly say, well, the only way that you can know what happens after this life is if somebody died, came back to life and told you about it, told you about what's on the other side. Well, the Bible's rather remarkable claim is that that is really what happened, That there was a man named Jesus, that he really died, that he really rose from the dead, and he had a lot to say about what happens uh, on the other side of death. Obviously, that's a disputed point. But what I want to do now, uh, this morning, is to explain the reasons why, according to the Bible, we can know what happens after this life. So that then you can think about those reasons, you can think over them, and you can assess for yourself, uh, what you think happens after this life. 
Well, if you're a skeptic, uh, if you're the kind of person who finds it hard to be convinced, then the good news is that you're not alone. Uh, You're in good company because one of the people that we met in the part of the Bible that we read before is one of the most famous skeptics. Uh, He's the uh, most famous skeptic in the Bible, Thomas. He was one of the early followers of Jesus. He was one of the 12 disciples who was connected with Jesus. Uh, And Thomas had followed Jesus around through his earthly ministry And then, like the other disciples, had deserted Jesus when Jesus had been arrested and executed by the Jewish and Roman authorities. After Jesus had been executed, the disciples were a broken lot. They had lost all their confidence. They were afraid. Uh, We find them in that part of the Bible we read before. We find them in a locked room. Uh, We find them hoping that they wouldn't also be uh, arrested and executed. In other words, the disciples, when we read about them in John chapter 20, are not there thinking to themselves, this Jesus that we followed is the God of the universe, he's risen from the dead, and we are totally going to live with him as well. They're not uh, in that locked room thinking to themselves, wow, this is the best day of my life. They're in the locked room thinking to to themselves, oh my goodness, we're going to die as well. They're going to hang us up on a cross as well. It's at that point when they're least expecting it that Jesus appears to them. Somehow Jesus enters this locked room. Uh, He greets the disciples almost as though nothing had happened and then proceeds to show them uh, the scars in his hands where the nails had been driven into the cross and the mark in his side where the spear had pierced him. When the disciples who were there with Jesus see these marks of his crucifixion, it's enough to convince them of something that I think most of us would find very hard to believe. It's enough to convince them that the man that they saw crucified, the man that they saw strung up on a cross, that man has risen to life again. It's a truth that they were least expecting, a truth which they will go on to spend the rest of their lives telling other people about. It's a truth which many of them would end up being executed for, for, for sharing as well. They were convinced that the Jesus whose ministry they'd followed, the, the man who they'd seen with their own eyes dying across, that man was now alive again and standing in front of them in, a locked, uh, in, in this locked room. But here's the thing. One person, one disciple, wasn't there. Thomas. Who knows what he was doing? He's probably off fishing or something like that. Uh, But he he didn't get to see Jesus alive. And so the other disciples, in their excitement, understandably, they go and tell Thomas, they go and say, you'll never believe what happened. We've seen Jesus, he's risen from the dead. And Thomas the skeptic says... Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I won't believe it. There's something, isn't there, absolutely right about what Thomas says. Thomas is a skeptic in the best sense of the word. He wants to know what the other disciples are saying is really true. He wants to see the evidence. He's a skeptic in the sense that he says, show me the evidence. I won't believe unless I see the evidence. 
blind faith is not a virtue. So sometimes people think that the message of Christianity is, you've just got to blindly hope that this is true, that God exists, that what the Bible says is true, there's no evidence for it, check your mind at the door on the way in uh, and just, just believe it. But that's not the message of the Bible at all and that's certainly not the kind of message that Thomas would have been happy with. Thomas wants the facts. I want to see this for myself. I want to see the reality of it. I'm not just going to be- believe it. There was another disciple who made a, a similar kind of point. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote a number of letters that were collected by early Christians into the Bible uh, And the Apostle Paul uh, was not a follower of Jesus when these events happened, the the ones that we read about, when Jesus appeared to the disciples here in John's Gospel. Paul was on the other side. He was the arch enemy. He would spend the early years after Jesus' death persecuting the other apostles, putting Christians in prison and even to death for saying that Jesus had risen from the dead. But then something remarkable happened The risen Jesus appeared to Paul one day while Paul was travelling on the road to a place called Damascus and that experience of meeting Jesus risen from the dead in the flesh turned Paul from Christianity's number one enemy to Christianity's number one advocate. From that point on, Paul dedicated his life to telling people that it was really true that Jesus had risen from the dead. And like many of the other early disciples, he ultimately gave his life for that message of Jesus and his resurrection. But listen to what Paul says about the importance of the historical truthfulness of the resurrection. He writes, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. That is, if Jesus' resurrection is a myth, then the whole of Christianity is a waste of time. Paul rightly points out that there's no respect, there's no gain in the intellectual suicide which says, well, it might not be true, but it makes me feel good. Paul says, what a waste of time and effort. If it's not true, let's just acknowledge that and leave it behind. Everything rests on the truth of whether the resurrection really happened. I met someone recently uh, who wasn't a Christian and as we got to talking sort of where he was at and, 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 uh, and, and his interest in Christianity, he basically said to me, look, I'm, I'm open to believing it. I'm open to believing the, uh, the, the truths of Christianity but I want to see the evidence. I, I, I want to see what the facts are and that's right, isn't it? That's, that's, that's right. I, look, I'm open to it but I want to see the evidence. If it's not true, we should just forget about it. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, let's sell the building and open a community centre. I can go back to being an engineer. Whether that's a good thing or not, I'm not sure. (laughs) Those of us who meet here regularly, we can get our lives back. We don't have to worry about clean-up days. We don't have to worry about helping other people. We don't have to worry about coming to church on Sunday morning. 
we can just throw all that away and just, do, just run our lives however we want. But if there's good evidence for Jesus' resurrection, then that changes everything, doesn't it? So Thomas is the great sceptic. He won't believe without facts. But although there's something kind of right about Thomas's demand for evidence, there's also something that's not quite right too. You see, when Thomas says, I won't believe unless I see evidence, he isn't making an arbitrary demand for, for evidence. What he's saying to his fellow disciples is, unless I see with my own eyes what you saw, then I won't believe that it happened. Unless I see with my own eyes what you saw, then I won't believe you. The other disciples had seen the nail marks in Jesus' hands. Thomas wanted to see the nail marks. The other disciples had seen the wound in Jesus' side. Thomas wanted to see that wound too. At one level, it's a perfectly reasonable request, but at another level, it isn't. What Thomas is effectively saying is, I won't believe anything that I don't see with my own eyes. And while on the surface that claim might seem far enough, it's actually impossible to live like that. You can't apply that rule to any other area of life. It doesn't work. Your life would completely fall apart. If that was your rule for determining whether or not something was true or not, then you couldn't believe anything that you ever saw on the news. Is there really a war in Syria? Well, I can't believe it. I haven't seen it with my own eyes. Oh, but there's video footage. Oh, yeah, but they can doctor that, can't they? In fact, uh, on Four Corners this week, there was a truly disturbing uh, documentary about the atrocities in Syria. And some of the claims were put to Bashar al-Assad, and that's exactly what he said. They had photos of mounds of dead bodies littering hospital uh, grounds, and he said, well, it's just doctored. I won't believe it unless I see it with my own eyes. But there are reports, there are UN reports, there are intelligence reports, there are eyewitness reports on social media. I'm sorry, unless I see it, I can't believe that it's true. If that was your rule for determining whether something was true or not, you couldn't believe anything that anyone ever told you. You couldn't believe your friend when she said that her sports, sporting team won on the weekend. I'm sorry, I didn't see it. I can't know. You couldn't believe your friend when they crashed their car. I'm sorry. I can see that the car's damaged, but how do I know what happened? I wasn't there. No case could ever be proved in court because the judge and the jury could never convict anyone unless they'd seen the crime with their own eyes. Do the members of the jury find the, the, the defendant guilty? I'm sorry, Your Honour, we weren't there. We've heard the evidence, we've heard the eyewitness reports, we've seen, the, we've seen all the evidence being piled up by the prosecution, but we didn't see it with our own eyes. We can't possibly know, we can't possibly make an evaluation on that. History would be impossible. We could never know anything about what's happened in the past. And not just what happened a hundred years ago, but even what happened yesterday. You see, just as there's a kind of scepticism which is right and good, I want to see evidence before I believe this, 
There's a kind of scepticism which is also toxic and completely unsustainable. Just as it's possible to believe anything ignorantly, stupidly, it's also possible to disbelieve anything in contravention of all the evidence. There are people who refuse to believe all kinds of things. There are people who refuse to believe uh, that we, the man landed on the moon. There are people who refuse to believe that a plane crashed into the Pentagon on September 11. There are people who refuse to believe that the Holocaust occurred. On what basis will you believe or disbelieve those things? You can't say, only if I see it will I believe it. It doesn't work like that. It will only ever be on the basis of historical evidence and witness testimonies. So, you need to ask yourself the question, what kind of evidence would it take, me, take for me to believe those things? What kind of evidence would it take for me to believe that the Holocaust happened? Why do I believe that happened? What evidence is enough for me to believe that? What evidence is enough for me to believe that you, my friend crashed his car? What evidence is enough for me to believe that man landed on the moon? And then say, what evidence is enough for me to believe that a man was raised from the dead? You see, one of the problems when we come to believing or disbelieving Christianity or the resurrection of Jesus is that we often demand a higher level of confidence or proof than we would for anything else in life. And we do it without thinking. So you might think to yourself, well, I'm not going to believe unless Jesus appears before me in person. But that's actually not a valid argument. We don't get to decide what kind of evidence we get. That's true in any area of life. We only get to decide whether the evidence that we have is valid. All right? Here's the evidence. What am I going to make of it? Not, well, if I had... You know, if I had an open hand, what kind of evidence would I want? No. Here's the evidence. Is that valid or is that invalid? Ten of Thomas's best friends told him that they'd seen Jesus alive. It's remarkable, isn't it? His best friends, people he'd known for years, they come and they say, we've seen Jesus alive. And he says, I won't believe you. That's not cleverness. That's hard-heartedness. That's why Jesus, that's what Jesus means when he says to Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Jesus isn't saying, blessed are those who blindly take it on faith. Blessed are those ignorant fools who, who go, yep, totally, I'm on that page. Jesus is saying, blessed are those who've heard the message of people who are reliable and who have believed it, who've entrusted themselves to that message, who've seen the evidence and hold it to be true. The problem with Thomas was he didn't believe even when the evidence was staring him in the face. So what kind of evidence is there then for the resurrection? For the resurrection of Jesus? Well, we don't have a huge amount of time to go through that, but let me just begin to lay out uh, very quickly some of the evidence that we do have. Uh, I should say also in passing that I think there's other good evidence besides this evidence for the resurrection. There's other good evidence for believing that Christianity is true, evidence 
uh, for believing that God exists, evidence for believing that the Bible is true, but we're just focusing today on evidence for the resurrection. So just hold that uh, in your mind as we go through. So there are two key pieces of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, and they are the empty tomb uh, and the eyewitness testimony. So first of all, there's the evidence of the empty tomb. So the resurrection of Jesus was first proclaimed in Jerusalem. Why is that important? It's important because that was the same place that Jesus was crucified and buried. It would have been impossible to sustain the message of Jesus' resurrection unless the tomb really was empty. Just think about it. It would be like somebody uh, today saying uh, that proclaiming that a Launceston man had, had risen from the dead. What would be the first thing that all of us would do? We'd, we'd go to the grave, right? We'd go to the grave and see whether it was empty or not. And if it wasn't empty, everyone would go, you're an idiot. There's a body in the ground. It would have been impossible for the message of uh, the resurrection of Jesus to be sustained unless the tomb really was being empty. Now, that doesn't tell us, uh, uh, that doesn't tell us why the tomb was empty, but it does tell us that it must have been empty. Uh, we also know that a rumour was circulated in the early time after Jesus' death, saying that the disciples had stolen Jesus' body. That is, a rumour was put out to explain the emptiness uh, of the tomb. And that rumour would have died out had the body been produced. So the evidence uh, suggests at one level then that the tomb was empty shortly after Jesus' burial, for whatever reason. But then there's also the eyewitness testimonies of those who saw Jesus risen from the dead. And that gives us the why uh, of the empty tomb. So there's the evidence of the disciples that we read before. There were people those first ten disciples and then Thomas himself who claimed to have seen the nail marks in Jesus' hand, the wound in his side. That evidence is recorded in one way or another in four separate documents uh, dating from the period after Jesus' death. Uh, There's the evidence of the women who went to the tomb early on Sunday after Jesus' crucifixion. Historians have often pointed out that no one in the first century in their right mind would use women as witnesses for something because the testimony of women was viewed as inherently unreliable. So Josephus, a Jewish philosopher who lived during Jesus' time, writes, let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the levity and boldness of their sex. That's good advice, just by the way. Um, uh, (laughs) No. The, the, The point is, you see, that if someone was making up a story, you wouldn't place women as the people who were there to, to see it first because no one would believe it. If you're going to go to all the trouble of making up the story, you may as well make it up in a way that people will believe. Historians call that the criterion of embarrassment. People don't use, uh, don't, don't confabulate uh, uh, evidence that will reflect poorly uh, on them and their case. Uh, I also mentioned before the, uh, the Apostle Paul, who had seen the resurrected Jesus firsthand. And in the letter that I also mentioned, or that we read for before, Paul says this about the, re- the evidence for Jesus' resurrection. He says, 
For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also." Paul says the most important part of his message was that Jesus died, but also that he rose again from the dead. And he goes on to list for his readers the witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. So he lists Cephas, which is another name for the Apostle Peter. He lists the 12 disciples. We've already heard their evidence. Uh, He lists 500 other early Christians. Jesus, uh, Jesus' brother James, the apostles again, and then also Paul himself. But most, the most important part of all that is, is that when Paul wrote to these early Christians, they were in a position to go back and check the evidence because some of these people were still living. He says, actually, most of these people who claim to have seen Jesus in the flesh, they were, they're still alive. You can go back. You can go back to Jerusalem and you can ask them about it. Don't just take my word for it. You can believe them as well. Couldn't those people still have all made it up? Yeah, of course they could have. But the question is, is that likely? Just like you have to ask, is it likely uh, that the attack on the Pentagon was made up? Or are you going to believe the historical evidence? We saw the building with a gaping hole in the side and we heard the reports of people saying there was a plane coming in and it smacked into the side of the building. What are you going to do with the evidence? Are you going to believe it or are you going to disbelieve it? Yeah, sure, someone could have made it up. Absolutely, people could make up anything. But is that likely? Is that the best explanation of the evidence? One reason that many historians, uh, in Christian or not in fact, one reason that many historians often consider the claims to be true is that the, the disciples had nothing to gain and everything to lose. The only thing they gained by preaching the resurrection was being cast out of society, thrown in prison, and potentially, and in many cases, actually executed. And while it's true that some people will die for things they believe to be true, uh, we see that all the time, don't we? We see uh, in the Middle East and other places, people suicide bombers, people giving their lives for something that they believe to be true. While people certainly give their lives for something they believe to be true, it's exceedingly unlikely that multiple people would die for something that they had knowingly made up. They say that something's only a secret. You know, the the more people know it, the less likely it is (laughs) to be a secret. So 500 500 people who say, yeah, I I saw him, and and then... continue with that so determinedly that they're willing to go to prison to be beaten and and even executed for that conviction. That's an extraordinary reality. It's extraordinarily unlikely that, that such people would go to death if they knew that they had made that up. Listen to these words from a Jewish scholar who doubted the historical reality of the resurrection but then came to believe that it really happened. He writes, 
when these peasants, shepherds and fishermen who betrayed and denied their master and then failed him miserably suddenly could be changed overnight into a confident mission society, convinced of salvation and able to work with much more success after Easter than before Easter, then no vision or hallucination is sufficient to explain such a revolutionary transformation. If the defeated and depressed group of disciples overnight could change into a victorious movement of faith based only on auto-suggestion or self-deception without a fundamental faith experience, then this would be a greater miracle than the resurrection itself. In a purely logical analysis, the resurrection of Jesus is the lesser of two evils for all those who seek a rational explanation of the worldwide consequences of that Easter faith. What kind of evidence do we have for the resurrection of Jesus? As the historian John Dixon has said, we have the kind of evidence you would expect a resurrection to leave behind. Can we know what happens after this life? The answer that the Bible gives is that we can know by looking at what God has done in Jesus. Jesus' resurrection is a foretaste, it's a beacon if you like of what God is going to do at the end of time for all those people who belong to Jesus. Jesus' resurrection proves that death is not the end, that there is hope of resurrection, and that hope of resurrection is available to you and me if we know Jesus and if we hang on to him. Jesus has the power to raise us from the dead just as he was raised from the dead, And so the most important thing that we can do is to know him uh, and love him. The writer of the book of John, which we read before, says there, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Saviour, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What happens after this life? Can we know... Yes, we can. Resurrection happens after this life. We see and know that in the resurrection of Jesus. And we can share in that if we know him uh, and love him. Uh, Now, you might still have questions about that, about some of the things that we've looked at, some of the things I've said, or you might want to challenge some of the things that I've said. So if you want to come and speak to me afterwards, I'll hang around uh, down the front here after the service and uh, you're uh, you're able to to come and uh, speak to me about those things. But let me pray now. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we pray that we wouldn't be bad sceptics, people who will disbelieve everything, even in the face of good evidence. And Lord, we pray that we wouldn't be uh, fools who believe everything that we're told, but Lord, that we would be people who carefully weigh the evidence. You think about life, you think about the reality of your existence, think about the world that we live in, You think about the testimony of Jesus' death and resurrection. You think about the historical records. 
you think about the lives of people changed by knowing Jesus, Lord, help us to consider the evidence to weigh it up. And Lord, if there are some of us who doubt the reality of Jesus' resurrection and long for hope after death, we pray that you might give them that sure hope and confidence grounded in what you have already done in Jesus and promised to those who belong to him. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.